Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. We're looking together at the last recorded parable told by Jesus in the in the Gospels, <clears throat> the parable of the talents. There's a version that's somewhat similar to it. Evidently, Jesus told varieties of stories and often they were kind of related. Uh, Luke contains a similar but distinctly different parable. And, uh, and so it seems like he repeated this and we know that repetition is a sign of importance. So will you stand with me and let's look together at God's word, Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. Jesus has just finished the parable of the, of the ten virgins, which he introduced as a parable that is a parable of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins. And then continuing on in this comparison, he goes into a second parable, which we're looking at together. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and handed over his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents, gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you handed five talents over to me. See, I have gained five more talents." His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you handed two talents over to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things, enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Therefore, you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's raise our hands 
to heaven and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that you will bless your word, that you will give it by your Holy Spirit application to our lives, that you will make it ours. Your word become ours and our lives transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is not a parable that is necessarily, obviously, an enjoyable one. It strikes us perhaps as unfair, and we're not going to get into that this morning, but there are certain things in here which strike us as unfair. All of us. He gives to each according to their talents. We look at that and we go, wow, you know, they have talents. They're given in accord with them. What do we make of that? Is it fair that one got five, one got two, one got one? Is it the lack of talent that made the one, uh, the lack of ability, let's not confuse our words here, the lack of ability that makes the one who gets the one talent falter and fail? And is that, that lack something that should be attributed to him as a fault or is it something that he's innocent in? I'm not going to answer that. Then at the end, as we, as we read the answer of the master to the one wicked slave, eh, you know these things about me, why didn't you put it in the bank, give it back to me with interest? We're, we're prone to saying in our own minds, well, at least he didn't steal it. You know, he didn't use it for his own pleasures, which is not absolutely the truth. But anyway, we're prone to say that. And when he says, take away the one from the, the one who did nothing with his one and give it to the one who has 10, we go, ooh, wow, that's unfortunate. We don't like it. It's not for you and me to, to, to cast judgment on God's word. I just, I have to say, these objections occur to you and I, I urge you to put them aside and to say, all right, Jesus speaks in certain ways. It's my calling to conform to his word, not, not his duty to conform to my way of thinking about things. Perhaps the very front of it, you know, the way it comes and, and hits us in a way that we don't like is intended by Jesus to make you stop and consider what he's saying and to realize that he is God and that you are not so that you will listen and be challenged by what he does say for you. Now, I think it's clear that Jesus told no more important and consequential parables than that of the ten virgins immediately prior to this and this one that follows the parable of the talents. They come at the very end of his life. They culminate his teaching. They are supreme as parables in their depth and their breadth. None of us can fail to love the parable of the prodigal son. It's beautiful. Nor can we fail to love and be entranced by the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, it's, it's so such an irony, and we love irony in the, the fact that the Samaritan is the neighbor. But here at the end of the life of Jesus, these two parables gather together the great themes of Scripture 
the deepest teaching of Christ as no other parables do. They are rich and deep, they are wide, they are the summation of the call to discipleship that Jesus began when he called his disciples to follow and become, to become fishers of men. Now both these are parables of the kingdom of God. And they are not about the kingdoms of this world. They are not parables about the prince of this world's kingdom. There is a kingdom on earth that is the kingdom ruled by the prince of the powers of the air, the prince of this earth, as scripture refers to him, the devil. But they are about both parables about the kingdom of God on earth, where it exists in the form of and in the power of the gathered people of God who are brought together in the name of his son and and who bear the name of his son, who are in unity with his son, who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit through the son, who are washed of their sins by his son, this kingdom. So wherever there is a child of God, there is a piece of the kingdom of God on earth, a portion of it. And even if you are the Ethiopian eunuch going back from Jerusalem where you've been worshiping to the the kingdom of Ethiopia where you are the sole knower of Christ because Stephen came to your chariot and spoke to you on your journey and left you so that you are going back to Africa and the only one in all of Africa perhaps who knows Jesus, you are the kingdom of God and you carry the kingdom of God with you as you go. That's the theme of these parables, and these parables contain a call to discernment. They call you and me to understand the kingdom. And the primary message of these parables is that this kingdom is a real kingdom, but it's a mixed kingdom. That there are many within the borders of this kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on earth, many who are counterfeit citizens of the kingdom. Many within its borders are not true citizens. Outside the kingdom, none are citizens of this kingdom. Now, many people would like it to be that Jesus' teaching here is that you can come to him by whatever means you want, whatever form of approach you prefer, so long as it's piously defensible and leads you to act and and live in a way that seems legitimately godly. That's his kingdom. But this is not the teaching of Christ. Outside, there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth at the end, at the day of distinguishing, of discernment, of judgment. None outside the kingdom in this life come inside in the life to come. There is no hope in the teaching of Jesus, nor at any point in scripture, for those who are outside the kingdom of God. If you are not part of the body of Christ, if you are not a part of the visible kingdom of God on earth, 
You will not be part of that kingdom in heaven. There is no exception. You must be a citizen of this kingdom to enter heaven. Those outside the kingdom aren't even brought forward for judgment. If you look and you understand these teachings and this passage that we're going through that continues on, constantly the people who are judged and surprised are those who, are not, who think they're part of the kingdom, who said, I was part of your kingdom on earth. The outsiders aren't even in view in these parables. Jesus calls those outside his kingdom in this world to come inside. He says to those outside, repent, turn from your sin. Love my father, be born again by my spirit into newness of life. Enter my kingdom. So the, the privilege and the power of this kingdom is open to all. It's not like the rich nations of our world and primarily the United States where we say we've got our money and we really don't want your poor and <laughs> your huddled masses. You know, you stay where you are. We have ours. We've earned it. It's ours. We don't want you to enter in. It's not the, the idea of this kingdom. This kingdom is offered freely without any discrimination to anyone and everyone who will enter by repentance, who will bear fruit in keeping with repentance and thus enter the kingdom of heaven. Outside the kingdom of heaven here on earth, there is only one class of people, lost sinners, men and women, as these parables make clear, who are destined for judgment. Now they can enter, but outside, as long as they remain there, they're without Christ, without hope in the world, and so the call of Christ to them is clear, enter, enter, come in. But within the kingdom of heaven on earth, Jesus warns in these parables, and these parables are addressed to those who are, who are seated here. They're really not addressed to the world, are they? It's about the kingdom of heaven. It's about those who consider themselves part of this kingdom in this life, in this world. Within the kingdom of heaven on earth, the warning of Christ in these parables is that there are two classes of people. One class exists outside, those who are unrepentant sinners lacking God's forgiveness. Inside, inside the kingdom, inside these walls, there are two classes one of which overlaps entirely with those outside. Inside, there are the truly forgiven, those who are repentant, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, born again to new life, born again by the Spirit, empowered by God and thus children of heaven. And inside as well, there are unrepentant sinners lacking God's forgiveness. Two classes in the church two classes in the kingdom of Christ here on earth, saved and lost, the redeemed and those who will be damned. Outside, all are lost. Inside, two classes, the redeemed and the lost. Now, the point of this parable is clear then, as it was in the past parable, and as it will be in where we go on in Matthew. The point is, examine yourself. 
Jesus is warning his disciples here. He's not speaking to anyone else. He's saying to them, it is possible to live within, to go through the motions of life in the kingdom of heaven without being a true citizen. Examine yourself. Make your salvation sure. Were these words spoken in particular at a last moment to Judas? Examine yourself. See where you stand. Examine yourself. Do not presume. And of course, having examined yourself and having looked within, if you find yourself lacking, Christ is calling you not just to examine yourself, but to go further and to translate a failed examination into action by repentance. By turning from your sin and sorrow to Jesus and in hope responding to his commands. So the question that's before us this morning is starkly this. Am I a citizen of this kingdom? Are you a citizen of heaven? Are you a child of heaven, a child of God? Now Jesus didn't call his followers Christians. That name came later. We're told that it was given to the first disciples in Antioch. That it was initially used as a term of opprobrium against them in Antioch, but they adopted it as a badge of distinction. So it's kind of anachronistic, it's out of time, it's not in correct order, but the name that's given later is what Jesus is asking them to, to examine themselves in regard to, am I a Christian? Jesus is saying, ask yourself, am I a Christian? Am I truly bound for heaven? When the sheep are separated from the goats, the thing that he turns to next, when the sheep are separated from the goats, which side will I be on? And this is the most important question in the world. We think questions are important questions when they have consequences in this life. You know, is the mass malignant? What will the biopsy reveal? Big question. Big question. Will you, will you marry me? Big question. Will I be fired in the layoffs this week? Big questions, lots of big questions in life. These questions do pertain to life, but the question that Jesus urges in these parables pertains both to this life and uniquely to the life to come. These other questions, they have no bearing on eternity. This question, though it's asked and answered here in this life, is infinitely more than any other question because it pierces the veil between earth and heaven because the answer we give this question here on earth has eternal implications beyond the veil in the kingdom of heaven like no other question you're asked and no other answer you give. It's more important than should I marry him? It's more important than any question that you might ask or answer in your life. Are you a child of God? 
Now, many of you belong to the church. Most of you, in fact, all of you almost, reside within this earthly kingdom. But are you truly a child of God? Are you, as Nicodemus was told by Jesus he needed to be, are you born again? Have you been filled by the Holy Spirit in such a way that you can say, the old has gone, the new has come? If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. Can you say this? The old is gone, the new has come. This is the question of questions. On his way to Calvary, hours from his death, Jesus urges self-examination over and over and over again to his disciples and not to the crowds in this private sermon, the Olivet Discourse, he preaches just to them. And just as in the parable of the ten virgins, in this parable of the talents, Jesus provides a standard for us to judge our true citizenship by. This is something we all need to understand. The story of the church is a story of people who ask this question unflinchingly and answer it honestly and are changed thereby. Men and women ask whether they truly know God and answering honestly they can say, well, yes, I am a new creation or no. I'm what I've always been. And those who answer no, for we all answer no at some point, are the ones who are blessed because they then have incentive and impetus towards Christ. It is thus a happy question to ask, do I know God? It's a good question. It is not morbidly introspective to ask, am I born again? Am I a Christian? It is not pessimistic. Pessimism is not realistic. This is a realistic question. Pessimism is looking at everything through dark glasses. This is simply honesty. It is not pessimistic as you pr propose to your friend to walk across the pond out there to ask each other and to ask yourself, will this pond support my weight? We'd say, if you call that pessimism and just boldly essay forth, you know, I'm not going to be pessimistic. Looks good to me. You would say you're stupid, right? It's realism to ask, is this enough ice? It is an obvious and necessary question and ultimately a happy one because should you realize that you fall short, you have the time to change course. You either answer this question in the negative and are warned to change, which is a happy result, or you find, as you ask it, evidence within and without, in the fruit of your life and in the transformation of your inner being, that you're truly within the kingdom, which is also a happy outcome. It only has two happy outcomes. 
if you ask it honestly. The only negative outcome that this question can, can bring about is found by those who want to be inside the kingdom but are not willing to ask this question because they are not willing to change and so they're going to be dishonest in their answer. Christ urges you to ask this question so you'll change, so you'll repent if you find yourself actually on the outside, but inside the walls of the church. Now, Paul, great apostle to the Gentiles, was forced to ask this question. He was absolutely convinced. He was on the inside and a follower. He was on his way to Damascus to put the Christians there to death or to bring them into imprisonment. And he was convinced that he was with God. And then he saw Jesus. And seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus, the light, the glory, the voice that he alone heard, he goes, whoa, <laughs> I don't think I'm really what I thought I was. I'm not sure that I've been on the right path. He began today, I'm fully convinced. He was setting out for Damascus and he was going to grab those Christians. By the end of the day, he had called Jesus Lord because he was forced to ask this fundamental question. Am I actually of God? Do I belong to God? Who is Jesus? Paul was forced to reassess not only his own standing, but his own course of life. And he did so honestly. In the light of Jesus, he couldn't help but say, okay. Pastors who've been pastoring churches have asked this question. So many times, pastors ask this question and actually come to life as a result. And many, many pastors should actually be asking themselves this question. Am I a child of God? One of the churches that sort of fed as a tributary into the stream that we're a part of at Christ the Word is a, a church a hundred years ago that was pastored by a young Lutheran pastor. He eventually left his Lutheran church, was kicked out kind of for heresy because he was teaching the new birth and established a church that was a predecessor to this one in Toledo. But the thing that caused him to change as a young guy in his 20s, a, a very success-oriented and proud young man, was a, a Sunday that he, he preached a sermon about the glories of the Lutheran church, comparing in the sermon the Lutheran church to a stately ocean liner back in the days before train, uh, plane travel across across the water. He said the Lutheran church is this perfectly appointed, magnificent ship with great crew and captains and, and you need to go on this boat to the other side to heaven, comparing it to the trip to heaven. And he said as part of it, you know, there are tramp steamers that go, you know, a tramp steamer is a junky little boat. There are tramp steamers that are going across, and some of them may make it, but you don't know. But you have this great, great ship. Why are you not sticking with the Lutheran church? Well, afterwards, he told an older friend who had taken an interest in him, an older Christian friend, not of his denomination, told him about his sermon. He was rather proud about it. Told him this sermon. And that older man looked at him and said, 
troubled by his pride, said to him, are you sure you're going to end up in heaven yourself? That young man was rocked. And that week, as he thought about it, he came to the conclusion that he wasn't certain he knew Jesus himself. And at the end of, I don't remember the length of time, not a long time, that man repented and became alive and preached Jesus with power for decades after that. He was already a pastor, already leading a church, but not a Christian. And if it can be true of pastors, and it's true of many, many, many pastors, it can be true of you as well. This is a story of many, many Christians. Sure they were in, confident they were in, proud they were in, until at some point Jesus meets them and they find themselves stunned and floored by the reality of his glory and the meanness of their spiritual lives. I came to ask this question two years into seminary on my way to being a pastor. I'd have been one of these pastors. It was painful. It was absolutely painful to ask this question the way I had to that summer. Painful because answering it honestly meant acknowledging that I was a shell, a facade, that I didn't really know God, that I really wasn't what I presumed and what everyone had always told me about myself, that it wasn't simply mine to say, yes, I prayed a prayer, I now belong to God, but that I needed something more. That prayer that everyone said, well, now you're a Christian. Great, don't doubt it. Young people, I know, I was subject to it myself at your age. I know over and over again, everyone's telling you that you're a Christian. Now, if they ask you if you're a Christian, it's only to commend you on a good answer. And you know that, and you answer it accordingly. Over and over again, you're being told you did this, you did that. You're being raised here, you go to this church, you're a Christian, you're a child of God, you're forgiven. And I say to you young people, don't take the word of others. This is a question only you can answer. Ask yourself, do I know Jesus? I don't know a person who knows Jesus who doesn't know that they know Jesus. You can't meet Jesus and not know that you met Jesus. Whether it's in brilliance of light on the road to Damascus, whether it's like that Lutheran pastor who just repented in the quiet of his parsonage, when you meet Jesus, it's unmistakable. I can't define it for you, you know it. It's like my heart that summer that I was asking this question myself, that was warmed by the realization that I didn't know Jesus, but Jesus was near. And as I confessed my sin and repented, the filling of my heart with this power and warmth, it was unmistakable. You, you can't ask this question. Now, I'm not saying you're bound for hell if you, if you answer honestly and say, no, I don't. The call is to answer it honestly and to be spurred, to be pushed to seek Jesus by the honesty of your no. I don't really think I know it. 
It's not going to harm you to ask this question. If you're a child of God, you are in no danger of losing your salvation by asking this question. That's why Scripture says, make sure of your calling and your election. No danger at all, but your parents and your teachers at Christian schools and your Sunday school teachers and your youth group leaders, they may not want you to ask this question. They may urge you to say, okay, just accept that God has done it. Have faith in your faith. Trust that you have done this, therefore you're a child of God. All these people are well-meaning, I think, but they can't answer this question for you. You're the only one who can answer it. I am often met with hostility from parents when I ask this question of young people. I'm actually not certain that the the children are as hostile towards me when I ask the question as the parents are. (laughs) And let me be clear. I'm going to use an example from my old church because it's more distant, but I've had the exact same kind of thing happen in this church. I've said to young men who've been out partying, and I know what they've been doing, and I say to them, hey, let's be honest. If you're not going to be a Christian, just don't be a Christian. Don't speak one thing, one way, you know, in the church, and in the rest of your life, live this way. Be honest. Well, I remember the Father in Christ the Word who was outraged that I would say that. If you're not a Christian, let's be honest about it. I'm not telling you to go out and sow your wild oats. By no means. God will judge you for that. But don't pretend to something you don't possess. Years ago, I asked this question of a girl from my church who had just attempted suicide. I was in her hospital room with her parents and her grandmother. And I stood there and I remember thinking, I've got to ask this girl about eternity. I can't ignore it. She's 16. She's just attempted suicide. There in the hospital room with her parents and grandmother, it was awkward. Her parents really didn't attend much. She came mostly with her grandmother. They were all standing there and I I said to her, so-and-so, where do you think you'd have gone had you been successful? You just tried to, it was night and I pointed to her window in this hospital and I said, you don't know what floor you're on, do you? And she didn't. I said, you just jumped out a, a dark window not knowing what was outside. You can assume you're on the first floor. But the reality is, you may be on the third and what you may meet may be very different than what you expect. What did you expect? What did you expect? I didn't enjoy asking the question I had to. Do you think her parents were happy? No, they were angry with me. But the question needed to be asked. She was playing with eternal fire. And someone, someone, probably should be the pastor, right? Should speak to her about the danger to her soul. 
Parents don't want this question asked. Teachers don't. Youth leaders don't. Pastors don't. The reason we don't is that we think it reflects poorly on us if the answer is, I don't think I'm a Christian. We want to be parents of successful Christian children. We want to be pastors of churches with successful Christian citizens growing up. And we want to be teachers who have taught our children or the children entrusted to our care well. We want, <laughs> we want to think that we've done our job right. We don't like being powerless to affect the thing that needs to happen in our children's lives. We want to think that every danger that exists, we can take care of and usher them through. And we hate the thought that there are immense dangers that we can't solve. Dangers that our children are going to have to face themselves without our ability to carry them through it, guaranteeing them safety. So we pretend that this danger of ending up outside the kingdom of heaven isn't real. We define it away. You have faith. You did a prayer. We say, wow, thank goodness. Certain churches, it's get them baptized. I remember a man in my first church who was desperate for his son, who was clearly a rebel against God, to be baptized. If only he'd be, he said this to me so many times over the 13 years I was his pastor. If only so-and-so would be baptized. If only. We want certainty and the Bible doesn't give us certainty as parents. It must take place between our children and God. The Bible gives us promises. The Bible gives us covenants. It does not give us certainty. Praise God, my father and mother never attempted to answer this question for me, never assumed they could answer a question that could only be answered within me by my looking to God in accord with his standards for his assessment rather than theirs or all the other people around me at the time who wanted me to be assured that I was already in the kingdom because I prayed or I'd done this or I'd done that. Many of us, very many of us need to ask ourselves this question and we will be profited by doing so. Too many of us have never asked this question seriously of ourselves. Perhaps because we fear what asking the question will reveal. But would you do this anywhere else in life? Would you set out to climb Klingman's Dome or Half Dome in Yosemite, that bald face of rock thousands of feet high? Would you set out to climb it without first asking yourself if you have the experience and the strength to make it? Why then do you not ask yourself if you have what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven? You're setting out for heaven, the presence of God. Do you have what he says you must have to make it there? Are you of the line that perseveres and succeeds or that which falters and falls short? The 
Brothers and sisters, I'm going to talk to you next week about the difference between the two groups in this parable, or between the one and the other two. But this morning, I just want to say, examine yourself. See whether you are in Christ. Do you know him? Have you been born again? Do you know the glory of your life being taken up by God, filled with his Holy Spirit, and sent out into this world as a light and a power? bearing fruit for him. There is no better life, none. Outside this kingdom, it's darkness. But you're inside this kingdom. Are you truly a citizen? If only in this life we have hope in Jesus, the Bible says, we are of all men most miserable. Do you have hope in Jesus that extends beyond this life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its power and the, the way that it comes to us and calls us to something great, to glory, to know you as our Father. Let us not fall short. Let us not be those who falter. Let us not hear away from me, I never knew you. Father, give our children honesty. In, their, in the fact of their rebellion against you, may they find the reality of their need and turn to you. I thank you that you've done that for so many of us. I thank you for doing that for me. Now, Father, we commit our children to you and we ask you to confront them. Show them yourself. Make them answer this in an honest fashion. So that if the answer is no, they may be led to repent and to gain the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.